That's some of my cheap comments in the morning. <laughs> you don't want to hear the other comments. <laughs> Good morning, men. Good to see Steve Roberts with us this morning. Well, welcome to the We'll let the old people settle down first. Stuart, Stuart Masson is still trying to bathe his ego. Last week at the men's retreat, this doesn't need to be recorded, uh, by the way, Evan. This is free. It has nothing to do with the Bible study, therefore we're going to go over today. Be careful, Mike, you're on the front row. I have a water bottle with me. Be careful. Be careful, Mike. Be careful of this guy. He's starting to brag on him now. We don't like braggarts. We were just saying what is true. This is not bragging, it's true. Let's open our Bibles to chapter 12, verse 3. And this morning, we're going to finish with our study of Hebrews. Is Evan here? Has he started the tape? I'm assuming he has. Well, all that foolishness was on the tape. That's good. Let people be jealous of the fun we have in class. And what I'm hoping that throughout this study, we have learned this and are still learning it perhaps, is that let us as God's people not allow any trial whatsoever, any temptation whatsoever, any weakness that is in us whatsoever overcome, distract, deter us from running the race of the gospel that God has put before us. This sermon, this Hebrews letter, if you would, has clearly demonstrated that living inside of us is the greatest the most superior, the most sufficient, the most caring, the most loving, the most able, the most in all of these categories that anyone can have. And that is the exalted Christ. He who took death into his own grips and when he died put death to death forever. And when he rose, he gave life to his people, 
and he sits and rules and reigns in the heavens at the right hand of God the Father to return to establish a new creation, a new heaven, and a new earth. This one lives in us by the power of his spirit. Therefore, nothing can overcome us except that which we allow to overcome us. Amen? Let us be a people of tenacity, of grit. And no matter what it is that's going on, to have an attitude, we will not surrender one iota to the trial, to the temptation, to the world, to the whatever out there. Let us have that kind of bold, purposeful, continual, consistent, persistent tenacity. So tomorrow morning or tonight, if your team loses or tomorrow morning something happens, let's be a people who are not tied to the issues of the world like that, but are tied to heavens, to heaven. Amen? Father, thank you. Father, we thank you for the greatness of this salvation, Father, that you have been showing us and revealing to us in greater ways throughout this study of Hebrews. Father, that the, the content, the revelation, the issue, the power, the source, everything that you have been communicating in this study, Father, is not only in us because your spirit is in us, Father, but that you would enliven and empower all that you've said so that we may be Hebrews 11 kinds of people. Father, that we may... Do what Paul says in Romans 8, 37, that we may be more than those who conquer through him who loved us. Father, cause this congregation to rise up, Father, and to face the world and the adversaries and the flesh and everything else that opposes your purpose. And Father, not only face it, But like Jesus, when he faced the darkness of death in the tomb of Lazarus, he stood there and looked directly into the face of death's dark face and said, Lazarus, come forth. And life came forth. Father, cause us to be that kind of people. We will never surrender to anything except your will. Father, cause us to be that way to be mighty in the spirit, to be effective before you, to be great in the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So the author now in chapter 12, verses 3 to 4, and we'll try to get through the entire rest of this writing this morning. The author in this, this particular section, beginning in verses 3 to 4, the author continues to point the church to Jesus Remember, he has said, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. The one who began the faith and the one who will finish the faith. So obviously the one who sustains beginning and finishing and in the middle sustaining our faith. And so as he continues to point the church to Jesus by explaining the purpose of their suffering, using Jesus as the example for God's purpose. Now, why suffer? What is the purpose of suffering? Well, let's read these verses, 3 to 4. Remember, he says, looking off to Jesus. And then he says, consider him. Who's him? The him of verse 2, looking to Jesus. Consider him who endured from sinners 
such hostility against himself. Have we, any of us, ever endured any kind of hostility from sinners? Has anyone in here ever endured any type of hostility from a sinner? Anybody at all? All of us have endured something from someone. And the greatest hostility is that I find myself, the the sinful aspect of myself, opposing God's work in me. I am the greatest hostility. The person on the outside of me doesn't have nearly the opportunity and ability to harm me as I do. Can you get that in your heart? Look in the mirror and you will see the greatest danger in your life, your own fleshly makeup, that which is residing in you. It's not the person next to you. It's not your husband, your wife, your children, or whoever it is, your mom and them. I am the greatest opportunity of Satan to destroy me. So it says, look to him who endured from sin is such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Look at him. Look what he did. Look what he endured. So don't let your faith heart surrender to the hostility that you're experiencing in the world. Look to Jesus. Consider him. In your struggle against sin, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding of blood. He says, look at Jesus. He says, because what he endured, you ain't seen nothing. You haven't experienced anything of what he went through. You see, they are reminded that Jesus' sufferings were redemptive and exemplary. They were examples as God's means to save and mature and preserve them. See, the fact of the matter is we need sufferings in our lives. We need it. We need weaknesses. We need temptations. We need trials. You say, well, I don't don't understand that. If I didn't have trials and temptations, I would consider myself as a self-made man able to do for God what he doesn't have to do for me, no thank you, I don't need your help, I can do this on my own, and I will be condemned for eternity because of it. It is God's goodness because of the fall that temptations and trials come because those are the things that keep me and you on our toes. They keep us humble. They keep us surrendered. They keep us looking to him. How many of us know that during particular difficult seasons, our minds and our hearts and our calls for help reach out to God much more than, quote, during the good times? The good times may be the thinnest ice. The difficult times may be us skating on the thickest ice. We need these things. So what is God's purpose in our sufferings? This purpose is explained in verses 5 to 11. So let's read this this section of verses. And have you forgotten? Now, you see what he says, forgotten. Trials and temptations often lead to spiritual amnesia. Trials and temptations and difficulties and circumstances, things not going right, problems in my life, often lead to spiritual amnesia. We have to fight to remember who God is, what he has done, what his promise is, and what he will continue to do. Because what he has done, he will continue to do. He doesn't stop in the middle of the program. He will bring it to completion. So he says in verse 5, And you have forgotten the exhortation, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? You say you're a child of God? Well, here's what God says to you as a child. 
My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one whom he loves and chastens every son whom he receives. For it is for discipline that you have to endure God, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons and daughters, as his children. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and you are not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You see, when we're undergoing the discipline of God and he uses the activities and the experiences of our lives to discipline us. What does discipline mean? It is the work of the potter. Remember in Jeremiah 18, it is the work of the potter that lovingly and carefully and beautifully the expert puts his hand against the clay and begins to bring pressure against the clay in order to form it into the vessel of honor that the potter wants it to be. That's disciplining, it's forming and molding and maturing us. It's extracting from us, it's correcting us. It's encouraging us. It's directing us. It's giving us revelation. It's accomplishing God's purpose in our salvation. We were not saved because we needed to be saved. We were saved because God chose us to be the vessels of honor in which his son would be glorified as we are conformed into the image of the Lord Jesus, Romans 8, 29. This is the purpose of our salvation. And God's great method of achieving that purpose is the potter putting his hands upon us, the clay, and moving and manipulating and forming and reforming and extracting and making us into an exact vessel, that particular vessel that will purposefully and specifically reveal an aspect in general, the general aspect, but aspects of the Lord Jesus. And we will be put on display. And on display the great potter will be able to say to all creation, look what I began with, that stuff, mud, junk in the clay of life, and look what I ended up with. And all creation will say what? What great vessels. No. All creation will say what? What a great artisan. What a great God. You see, my life is for one purpose only. Your life is for one purpose only, to declare the glory and the magnificence and the beauty and the majesty, the ability, the love, and everything else of this great creator. Otherwise, we don't have a reason for existence. There is no reason for us to be saved. And God's purpose in that is the vicissitudes of life. So can we begin to get a better idea and attitude about these things. But you see, one of the dangers in our sufferings and our difficulties and trials is this. 
we have to remember that these things are not punitive. You know what I mean by punitive? What does punitive mean? Punishment. There is no such thing as a child of God ever, ever experiencing even one moment of punishment from God. So may I disabuse you, as the Bible does, of any thought, I wonder what I did. I wonder where, where. it is something maybe that you did or didn't do. But the activity isn't punishment. Jesus has been punished for what you and I did or didn't do. So the purpose of the Father is not to punish, but is for protection. It's for discipline. It's not for destruction. So if I am going off the track and the Lord moves me back on track, and he can do it easily, I'm on track. If he has to kind of knock me up the side of the head because I'm not listening for the first three whisperings of my heart, he may have to knock me up the side of the head. But that knocking up the side of the head isn't a punishment thing. It's a protective thing. It's a discipline thing. So please, let's get in our hearts because Satan wants you to think this. The first thing that comes into our minds when we are experiencing these kinds of things is there's something wrong. God is not loving me anymore. We get worried. It's not punitive. God will never, not even once, punish any child of his. Do you believe this? Then the next time Satan whispers in your mind, this is punishment, draw in a great breath and with a loud bellow, Yell at him that he is a liar. Sometimes you have to yell at Satan. Martin Luther threw an inkwell at him. Yes, Satan is a real being. So don't let that happen in you. It's not punishment or punitive. It's protective. It's ministry. And so in verse 11, the author tells him, what is the fruit of it? What's the cost? The cost is the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And by the way, let me say this. The level of testing and sufferings or trials in your life necessarily has nothing to do with your maturity. We may think, well, it's the less mature who need the most molding. But God doesn't work like that. All of us need as much molding as we can receive from God in every instance of our life, correct? And so the more mature believer doesn't need more or less molding. He needs the same as everyone else does, but he needs different kind of molding perhaps in different areas. And so let's, again, remember, if you are maturing in Christ, don't expect the trials and whatever to to diminish. They will continue. They will just go into different areas because we all need as much discipline as God will give us at all times in our life. And it's not going to diminish until life is finished. I like that. It's not going to diminish until life is finished. It's a natural port. You know, it's just it. Jean's jealous, but what can I tell you? You know, she's sitting over there moaning right now. <clears throat> you see, but what's the... What's the uh, 
Is it worth the cost? Is it worth the cost? Every time you're going through something, ask this. Is the glory of God worth the cost that I'm going through? You see, why sufferings? Why? Let me just encapsulate it very quickly for you. God is extending the activity of his rule over his rebellious world through the church as his army of righteousness by the preaching of the gospel message that Jesus Christ is Lord. And as God extends that rule, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be mighty opposition. The greatest revelation of the kind of suffering and its purpose and the good of it and the glory of it and the result of it is seen, for instance, when you read the Old Testament, especially if you were to read Judges, uh, Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, you will see a great revelation in the work of God as he is establishing his kingdom and setting his king, King David, on the throne. And you will see the constant struggle, the constant pain, the constant trials, the constant difficulties that are occurring against, coming against God's purpose. But in it all and through it all, God wins every time. That's a picture of my life as a picture of your life. And so the writer of the Hebrews is saying, let's make sure we see heaven's perspective clearly and not only see heaven's perspective clearly, but let's actively embrace and pursue heaven's perspective on sufferings. So the next time these things happen, let's not complain but rejoice. Now, I have to remember these things because I complained once last year. It was a continual complaint. <laughs> Linda was going to catch me on that. But you see, I saw your eyes ready to pounce. She was ready to come at me. She had her machine in gear. She had her machine in gear ready to mow me down. This is vital. It's vital to our growing in Christ. So what is, so verses 12 and 13, the author instructs them how to relate to their sufferings as disciplines. How do you relate to them? He says, therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. Now, this is a corporate instruction. In other words, each person individually is to do this, and we are to do this for one another. We are to minister to one another and help one another and look at the droopy hands and the weak knees around us. And we are to pursue one another and help one another and minister to one another. And we are to receive that kind of ministry from one another. And he says, make straight the paths of your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather may be healed. So that's how you deal with it corporately. Now let's look at faith's response in sufferings, chapter 12, verses 14 to 13, 19. Let's look at some of the response of faith to sufferings. Verses 14 to 17. Strive for peace with everyone. Notice what it says here. In the midst of sufferings, don't whine. Don't complain. Don't question. Question biblically, but not. Don't run away. How to respond in your sufferings? Brother, you don't know what I'm going through. You don't understand the circumstance. 
How are you supposed to respond when all hell, it seems, is breaking out against you and everything is coming apart at the seams? In some of your lives, this seems to be happening. What do you do when everything seems to be caving in? Serve the purposes of God in the church. Start ministering even more. Get involved with others. So what does he say in verse 14? He says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. What should you do? How to encounter and deal, how to deal with sufferings? He doesn't say how to get away from sufferings. He doesn't say how to get around sufferings. He says how to function in the middle of sufferings. One of the greatest dangers that I face when I'm undergoing difficulties and trials is to try to escape. I have learned over the years, and I'm still learning. So I shouldn't say I am learning over the years. That where there are particular areas of weakness in me that are obnoxious, some of us know that there are certain areas of weakness in me or you that you can kind of put up with, right? But there are others that are obnoxious and dangerous and, you know, seem to be worse. And I, I, have, I am learning not to dodge these things, not to ask God, get them out of me, but to allow the Holy Spirit to use the issues in these areas as continuing opportunity Put your hand on me as a vessel who needs more molding. Don't dodge it. Don't try to get out of it. Don't give excuses for it. He says, strive for peace. He says, by caring for the welfare of weaker brethren, care for others. By guarding against any root of bitterness that might lead to the kind that was in Esau who rejected his birthright and could not repent. Don't let bitterness and anger and resentment and why is God doing this and uh, what have I done wrong and why am I like this and this person isn't, but that, you know, stop that. Guard against it. And remember that everything that comes into my life, into your life, must proceed through the permission of God. There's nothing that comes into my life that has not first gone through the permission of God's purpose. And as such, am I to say that God is wrong and that he's malevolent and that he is something whatever by being critical of this, thereby criticizing the very means that God has given in my life and in your life to make us the great vessels of his glory and the objects of his love? We need to be very careful about idolatry, very subtle idolatry in our lives. Very subtle idolatry, but extremely dangerous idolatry. You see, it's the idol that is subtle and you don't see it. That's the biggest danger in the world. 
the snake under the bush and your foot is right next to the bush, the snake that you don't see that is more dangerous to you than maybe the snake that is right on the water out there and you can see him swimming towards you because he's making a lot of noise. We have to be careful of these things. It's so easy to get entwined and choked out by the issues of our life. Chapter 12, verses 18 to 24. We're talking about faith's response. Their faith is to persevere because of the greater benefit they have in the new covenant. Why can they persevere and how can they persevere? Because we, unlike Israel, have the very active, continual presence of God's power and person with us. May I say that God's presence is not only active in the believer's life, it is continual. God never withdraws his presence from a believer. Do you believe that? Now, do you always feel his presence? Do you always think it's there? Does it seem as if God has withdrawn and gone somewhere else? Yes. It is impossible for God to withdraw his active presence from us. Why? Because he has promised not to do it. I will never leave you nor forsake you, no, ever. He even mixes it up with a bunch of negatives at the end of it. I will know, not ever, never forsake you. I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. So when we're undergoing these things, don't fall for Satan's slimy lies. God is still active. I don't feel him. That doesn't mean a thing. God is active, you see, because God not only is with me all the time, it is impossible for God to be with me and not active. God cannot be inactive. He's just not sitting on the chair watching. He is actively involved. I may not either see it or believe it, but I better. I need to see it by faith and believe it by faith. Correct? Let's not be bowled over by these things. I remember one time praying. I stopped in my prayer because I didn't feel God's presence. And I began to complain, Matt. God, it doesn't seem as if you hear me. I don't want to belittle that, but there is a babiness about that. And man, I got a rebuke. You know, it's almost like somebody yelled at me. I just felt this come across. He says, do you believe that I hear you only because you believe I hear you? How many of you, come on, I said this already. How many of you have had problems once in a while when you don't feel God hearing you? Come on, come on, come on. Do you believe that he asked me this, that my hearing is based on you believing I hear? So now when I don't feel he hears, what I say is this. This is what I say to myself. Oh, I speak to myself a lot of times. I'm the only one intelligent enough to understand. So I'm, I speak to myself a lot of times, and I say this. Remember, God always hears the words of his people, always 
He doesn't promise to always give us the feelings of it, but he does promise to always give us his ear. Always. So the next time you feel, I don't know, I'm not making light of that. It's real. And it can be very dangerous and devastating. Don't go with it. Say, no, 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 flesh. No, Satan. My God hears every word and even the words that I did not put together, that I didn't know how to put together, he hears everything always from me. And he's always actively involved in answering and dealing and ministering always. Rebuke yourself and rebuke the thought that would impugn our great God. So they've come. How can they be, how can they persevere? They've come. In the new covenant, they've come to a living God. Listen to these verses in 18 to 24. For you have, and, and by the way, understanding these verses, you'd have to go back to Exodus chapter at the end of 19 and into chapter 20 to get a real view of these verses. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. Remember, in the old covenant, They couldn't get near the mountain. They couldn't touch the mountain. The great fireworks that was going off on Mount Horeb. And the people were terrified. And the sound of trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. In other words, the very literal voice, vocal voice of God himself was speaking from the mountain. And the people said, no, 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 we can't take it. Speak to Moses and he'll tell us. It was a very sobering experience as the majesty of God himself, the Lord Jesus, came and sat down on Mount Horeb and began to tell his people the law. Majesty. Verse 20. For they could not endure the order that was given. If any beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you, you see, that's the old covenant. But listen to what we have come to. Through the blood of Jesus and the cross and the resurrection. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable angels in festal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who were enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant and the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How can we persevere? We're in this new covenant. Everything necessary for perseverance and overcoming has been given to us. Now, we may not be talking about apostasy as was the temptation in these days among these people. But we are certainly talking about the issues of how we handle temptations to sin, troubles, trials, difficulties, attacks, misunderstandings lies, whatever. We are certainly talking about those things, aren't we? Isn't that where we live today? 
The final warning in chapter 12, verse 25 to 29. There is a final warning here. You see, this man teaches apostolically. He puts the entire message of the gospel in front of the people. He doesn't just tell us a couple of good things and keeps it what we would call positive. He also brings in the great dangers of disbelief and rejection and continues to warn us. And remember, these five warnings, these five, this is the fifth one, have been for the purpose these are genuine and true warnings. If you reject the faith, you will be rejected. There is no hope. That is the truth. Now, the question is, are you going to reject the faith? I don't have any uh, intention of doing so. You may want to say, well, what happens if you do? You do it and tell us about it in an email. But, Tony, I'm not doing it, so you're not going to get an answer from me. You know why I'm not doing it? Because I have a God in me who is greater and will keep me on the path. But if you are intent in getting off the path, jump off and tell us about it later. Send us a good hot mail and let us know. But you see, any minister or teacher of the Word of God who does it consistently must bring warning. And if you're sitting under the Word of God consistently and you are not ever hearing anything of warnings, lest we be running in vain, lest we do this, lest this happen, if you do not continue, this is not biblical New Testament teaching. It's just not. Just read the letters of Paul and Peter and these guys and listen to what Jesus said, and it is filled with warnings. Why? We need them because of our arrogance and our weaknesses. I have to be warned. But what if you, I don't know about all those what ifs. All I know is, thank God for his hand of loving warning. Verses 25 to 29. See that you do not refuse. Now you see it's come down to refusal. There has been a declination, a declining of attitude, an increase in apostasy, an attitude of apostasy. And we come down to the bottom line is this, refuse. And here's the great danger in our lives when we are undergoing difficulties. And someone comes to us, sent by God, and who says to us, John, I believe I have a word for you concerning an area of your life, begin to share with you. And all of a sudden, defensiveness, pride, allegations of legalism, uncare, everything comes up in order to bat away the very means of grace that God gives to rescue you out of the dangers of your disbelief in that area. All of us have to be very careful, no matter who you are, no matter what's happening and how God is delivering the word. You have to be very careful not to allow a heart of refusal. You know how you're going to know whether you're refusing? Your guts will tell you. Your gut feeling. You know that feeling that 
you kind of get a little grit teeth and you get the eyes kind of squint a little bit and you kind of get your back. You know, anybody ever ha had that feeling before? Yeah. Don't refuse him who speaks. You see, this word is for them apostasy. Well, I'm not going to apostatize. I don't have to worry about this word. Oh, no. This word is as much for me as it was for them and as much for me as it is for thee. Apostasy, refusal, and we do it regularly. We argue with one another. We debate things that we ought to be saying, brother or sister, thank you for that. I'm going to pray about that, and I'm going to find out of God, from God, what of God is in that, and I'm going to repent, and I'm going to let you know what's going on. Refusal is very dangerous. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them from on earth, much less, less, <coughs> much less we will escape if we reject him who warns for us, warns from heaven. At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, so that is, the things that have been made in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. See, they are warned that their desire to escape their sufferings by going back to Judaism is about refusing Christ ourselves. And they're reminded that the fate of those who refuse by trying to escape earthly sufferings, they incurred eternal sufferings. But you see, we have to be warned also. We're not tempted to go back to Judaism. But I'm certainly tempted to crawl away from the person or the method that God gives in my life to bring accountability and revelation of sin to me. I have to be very careful. We have to be very careful that we're not refusing him who is speaking. In chapter 13, verses 1 through 6, faith expressed in relationships. In other words, how do we respond to sufferings? Well, this is the third type of response, I believe. How do we respond to when everything, or maybe too many things, or that one thing is going wrong in my life? What do I do? Well, faith expressed in our relationships. Again, too often when things are going awry, we want to pull away from the very relationships that God gives into our lives to deal with these issues that are causing trouble for the purpose of building us up. We need to run to relationships. We'll see people that we haven't seen for a long time. And what's been happening, Carol? Well, I've been going through a bad season. Well, why haven't you been here? Well, I've been going through a bad season. Well, why didn't you come, with, come into the church? Well, I've been going through a bad season. Well, and when you're going through a bad season, run to church. Run to the people of God. When you're going through a bad health time, you don't stay away from the doctors. When do you go to the doctor? I got this bad pain. I can't go to the doctor today. I hurt too much. I did tell the doctor the other day, I'm too old to get sick, but, you know, things happen like that. Faith expressed in relationships. Let me just summarize this area, and you can read the Scriptures. The proof and maturing of their faith occurs in the way they relate to one another. Do you want your faith to mature? How many of us want to grow in Christ? 
How many of us want to mature? How many of us want to experience the love, the peace, the joy, the blessings of God in a greater and greater way? All of us do if you're saved. The prominent, preeminent way that God gives to us Certainly his personal relationship with us, our time of prayer and fellowship with God in the word and prayer, certainly. But then there is this vast area that is absolutely essential unless God puts you on an island by yourself. It is essential that we are to love the brethren because loving the brethren shows us how much we need to receive the love of God and what it costs God to love us. Hmm? Anybody try to love the brethren and you got bitten? Anybody in here? And, well, why did that happen? Because one of the issues is the Holy Spirit is just showing to you. You think you got bitten. Doug, you should have seen what you did to me last week when I said something, but, you know, so I'm just trying to show you, right? Loving the brethren, teaching us what love really is, God's kind of love. And it teaches us the great glory and the wonder of God's people. They are to show hospitality to strangers. They are to minister to prisoners. It's how to love the brethren. They are to honor marriages. They are to be free from the love of money. He said, you want to be mature? Don't stay away from God's people, the collected people of God in the local church. To do so allows you to be the object of all kinds of attack, and you will deteriorate in your maturity. You will deteriorate in your maturity if you have the opportunity of being with God's people and you don't do it. You're going to deteriorate. You will deteriorate on a day of judgment. The Lord will literally ask you, why did you stay away, Linda, from my people? Well, I had this happen and then that and this disappointment. And that leader said that to me, and I didn't like the way Matt led the worship. No excuse. Matt's still learning, so there's no excuse. You know, I have to contend with him every week about what he does wrong. But, you know, there's no excuse. Everybody knows I should be the worship leader, right? <laughs> you ever hear me sing, you would, uh-huh. that may be the only excuse not to go to church on Sunday if I'm leading worship. <laughs> Maybe there's some loud amens up in this front row. You behave yourself. 7 to 19, faith grounded. How do we respond to sufferings? Faith must be grounded in doctrine through obedience to leadership. Now, someone, say, someone said to me one time, that must be difficult for you to talk about leadership when you're a leader. It is not difficult at all. God places in the church primary means for maturity. The Word of God is the primary means. Doctrine, the Word of God, truth. But that means must be applied, must be shared, must be uh, walked out, and that is through the leadership that God gives to the church. 
And if you have a problem with leadership in the church, you have a problem with the way God is in himself because even God the Father gives leadership to God the Son and God the Son receives it joyfully. Man, I don't like leadership. Then you are rebelling against the very nature and character of God himself. It's not about me. It's not about Keith or Matt or Jeff or any of us. It's about God. It's about God. Why do we have leaders? Why can't we do Because God is a triune being, and the Father takes the leadership within the community of God. This is why. This is what all, it's all about with leadership. It's not about men having their own way or doing things like that. It's about God. Now, does leadership always do it right? No. And when we don't do it right, you are under compulsion to come tell us. And when you tell us, we are under compulsion to listen and to receive and pray and evaluate and hear from God and return to you to share with you what we heard from God. And then together we walk. So we're not talking about arrogant leadership that's going to, you going to do it this way, and I'm the, you know, and I'm the leader, and you're not, or whatever. We're talking about shepherding and serving the means, uh, the uh, people of God by the means of God. See, leadership. Their faith is to be grounded in sound doctrine through godly leadership. The church has gone off the track over the years And one of the primary and persistent reasons for that is that ungodly or unbiblical leadership or the refusal of a church or a group of people to listen to biblical godly leadership and refuse, as we see in that verse previously, and they go off track. They are to remember and to initiate, imitate godly leadership, remembering that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. They are not to be swayed by strange teachings. There ain't no other gospels out there. All this new stuff about the gospel of Thomas and Mary Magna. You know what? There's one word that sums up all that stuff. Shall I say that word to you? No, that's what it is. That's what it is. It's exactly what it is. It's an attempt of Satan to undermine the gospel. They're reminded their stability, their stability is a result of the cross of Christ who suffered for them. They are to obey and submit to their leaders, and they are to pray for their leadership. And finally, the great benediction. Listen to this benediction. And now, now, when? Now, may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, Equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us, that is which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And then he greets the brethren. Thank you so much for remaining in this study and being consistent. We next week gather for prayer in this room at 845 and then what is it, the 20th, we begin another series of about six weeks of teaching the elements of the gospel. Please come to that so that we will know the gospel and how to share it and will be much greater impacting the kingdom, for the kingdom of God. Thank you for coming.